as a family, we uh, suffer losses. And so this week, Mike Montgomery and Rob Talton both lost their father. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the faith of our fathers, those who've walked in your ways, their lives, their example. Now we pray for the grieving families, Lord. Would you comfort and give peace? Would they cling to the hope that you prepare places for us in heaven and that you have good things that are waiting for us there, rewards? Lord, um, be near these families, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Nehemiah chapter 4, a sermon entitled Overcoming Discouragement, because there's some very discouraging things happening. I almost entitled it Overcoming Opposition. This morning, I'd like to talk to you about opposition. Every week, NFL teams study films of the opposition. They have scouts sent out to preview, to see what the opposition has. They have a practice squad that mimics the opposition. They have a game plan to exploit the opposition's weakness, to take advantage of their strengths. When it's game time, the object of the offense is to move that ball down the field and get points, especially in the red zone. Object of the defense is to get the offense off the field. They'll blitz that quarterback and cover their receivers and um, try to stop the runners from running. There's always, in football, opposition. We come to Nehemiah 4. We hear that Nehemiah will say in this great chapter, fight for your brothers and fight for your sons and fight for your daughters and fight for your wives. What he's saying is, if you'll fight for your family, God will fight for you. And the attack of the 21st century, as you know, is on the home. The values we hold dear are worth fighting for. The ideas we cherish are worth fighting for. Our family we love is worth fighting for. We have to take a stand for our kids and for our marriages and for our values. Nehemiah and his people are going to encounter ridicule, disdain, contempt from their neighbors. We can't expect that what we see on television or read online or here at work will support Christian values. The broader culture we're living in is very woke, basically endorsing what the scripture frowns upon. So what Nehemiah is all about now is building up the walls and the gates of the city to protect his people. We're not going to allow Hollywood to raise our kids. We're not going to allow Disney to raise our children. We're not going to let social media control their lives. We are going to raise our kids. We're going to fight for our kids. When our kids need correction, we're going to correct them. When our kids need support, we're going to stand with them. When our kids need encouragement, we're going to encourage them because we are family. One of the most cherished values in the Bible, we'll see, is our children. One of the vast differences in values being played out even now in the Middle East is what happened at a little uh, kibbutz called uh, Kafar Azah. A mother and father heard the sound of the assailants with their children. It was called a safe room. They valued their children over their own lives. These mothers and fathers were murdered and the children were found 15 hours later by the IDF. Contrast what happened in that farming town with what is happening in Gaza. Israel dropped leaflets in Arabic warning the residents of Gaza that they would be bombing to destroy military targets. Rather than take their children to safety, Hamas asked their people to stay in the war zone. 
What parent, what parent would keep their children in a war zone? They use their children as human shields. Why? They want to create a false narrative that Israel is the aggressor, the wrong party. And now you see in so many cities in America, around the world, Palestinian supporters saying things like, free Palestine from the river to the sea. So what is Hamas? <clears throat> Hamas, is a, um, Hamas is a terrorist organization made up of Sunni Muslims. Israel gave autonomy to Gaza in the year 2005. In the year 2006, all the troops, all the settlers were moved out of Gaza, and Hamas was elected to power. Hamas is an acronym for the Islamic Resistance Movement. Hamas in Arabic means strength or zeal. Hamas in Hebrew means violence. So let me read to you a piece of the Hamas Charter. Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam obliterates it. The Day of Judgment would not come until Muslims fight and kill the Jews and Gentiles. What I'm trying to say is, <clears throat> what is happening in the Middle East is an attack upon Israel and their right to exist. In 1987, Hamas was founded in Gaza. In 1988, Hamas published a charter calling for the destruction of Israel. In 1991, the military wing of Hamas was made. In 1993, Hamas began suicide bombing. In 2000, they started what's called the Infatada, rising up against Israel. In 2005, Israel evacuated all their troops from Gaza and built a fence around Gaza for their national security. In 2006, Hamas won the election. You say, Pastor, where, when did all this start? Well, let's go way back to the time of Abraham. See, Abraham was told he's going to have a son, the promised son. But he got a little impatient. And so his wife, Sarah, said, why don't you have a son through my servant whose name was Hagar? So she had a son whose name was Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn son to Abraham. However, he was not the son of promise. What does the Bible say about Ishmael? He would be a wild donkey of a man whose fist would be raised up against his brothers and his brother's fist raised up against him at enmity with his brothers. So what you see being played out now in the Middle East is the children of Ishmael, namely the Arabs, against the children of Abraham, Isaac, the children of promise. Which takes me now to our first point of the day, that godly leaders battle discouragement. Look with me in Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm going to read a few verses to you. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that he, we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews saying in front of his friends and Samaritan army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they are doing? Do they think they can build a wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from this rubbish heap? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse even if a fox came along top of it. The enemy is against Israel. God has chosen Israel. They are his people. 
The enemy is relentless in his attacks. And the result of these attacks is often we feel discouraged, especially if we're being attacked on many fronts. Godly leaders will battle against discouragement by knowing the enemy and his tactics. The enemy will lie, and the enemy will deceive, and the enemy will divide, and the enemy is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, prowling about. We need to know something of the enemy and his tactics. Mockery is certainly a tactic of the enemy to discourage us, to distract us, to keep us from finishing the work. Think about David, the first king over Israel. When he was just 17 years old, his father had a mission for him. Take some bread and cheese to your brothers at the battlefront. Sort of like David became a pizza delivery man, taking bread and cheese to his brothers. And when he came there to the valley of Elah, he saw his brothers serving under King Saul, and for 40 days, Goliath, the Philistine warrior, was mocking the soldiers. (laughs) Goliath said, give me a man to fight. Is there not a man among you who will fight me? So David comes to the battlefield. He hears Goliath's rant. Now, he's heard about what the king will do for him if he fights the giant. He'll make him very wealthy. He'll give him the king's daughter, and his family would be exempt from taxes. So he asks the question, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who mocks the armies of the living God? And then his older brother, whose name was Eliab, said, what are you doing here anyhow? Where are those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know how proud you are. You just came to see the battle. The first to mock David was his brother. The second to ridicule him was the king. You're only a boy. (laughs) He is a champion warrior. The third to mock David was Goliath. What am I, a dog? That you come at me with sticks? He was angry that David showed up for battle without armor, without a sword, without a javelin. Goliath was nine feet, nine inches tall, maybe weighed 400 pounds. David was about five foot two, soaking wet, 145 pounds. And David took down the giant, even though he was mocked. Samballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. And he flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying, in front of his friends and Samaritan army officers, What does this bunch of feeble, poor Jews think they are doing? Notice the language. These men were poor. There's an element of truth in the criticism. And they were feeble, meaning they were withered. Do you hear the sarcasm, the scorn, the derision with which they come? Will they finish in a day? Have you bitten off more than you can chew? Is the project larger than you ever imagined? You didn't realize how difficult this project will be. Will they offer sacrifices? Are you sincere in your faith? Can you make anything out of this rubbish heap? Charred ones at that. They questioned and ridiculed the stones they were using. Yeah, these stones were taken from the rubble, but the gates were burned with fire. The the stones still had plenty of good left in them. And then verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside them, 
has his turn. And he says that even if a fox were to walk on this wall of yours, you wouldn't need an army to knock down the wall. A fox could knock it down. Who do you think you are anyhow? Some of you live in homes where there is mockery. Your spouse doesn't believe. Your kids are in open rebellion. Your parents think perhaps you're foolish. Some of you go to school where there is mockery. Your teachers scoff at your faith. Your classmates don't believe. This is exactly the world that Jesus predicted we would live in. Believers trying to do the will of God and unbelievers mocking them. What I didn't expect when I became a Christian was how much mocking you get as a believer. Perhaps this is justice because when I was an unbeliever, I used to mock the Christians trying to preach at my college campus. Me and my derelict friends would make fun and ridicule the Christians. And then I became a believer. And whenever I saw my uncle, he ridiculed, made fun of, attacked me. He was raised by a religious mom and was living himself in open rebellion. He'd say things like, you know, the Bible is full of contradictions. He'd say, you know, the Bible was written by men. It's pretty outdated. You know, religion is really for the little old ladies and the children, not for guys like you. And then he'd say stuff like, you know, I'm going to hell. I'm going to party with my friends. You know, being with my uncle was like a class in apologetics. Just learning all these trash talkings I was getting as a brand new Christian. I was mocked. I was made fun of. I was ridiculed by my old friends. I became a believer, and God delivered me from many, many things, including alcohol overconsumption. I didn't want to go to bars anymore and drink to excess. I wanted to witness to people about how God can set us free. So my friend, after a golf tournament, I was a brand new Christian, wanted to go with me to drink to excess at a bar. I said, no, I, I don't do that anymore. At the core of me, I have a new identity. I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. I have something better than alcohol. My biker friends would say the, the best high is the most high. And so this friend of mine, this friend of mine said to me, so you're one of them. So you're too good for me. So you think you're better than me. Get out of my car and walk. It was my first experience of opposition from former friends, and I would never see this guy again. What Nehemiah was talking about here was opposition, being made fun of, ridiculed. Nobody likes to be made fun of, but there are promises in the scriptures to let us know that we can stand against the tide of culture. Jesus promised us, this is your part for encouragement, Jesus promised us that persecution would come. And so when it happens, it's just a confirmation. And you are in some great company, like the apostles and the prophets. Peter and John rejoiced when they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for this name. Ridicule itself may not have the last word because God may use 
your courage and devotion to the truth to even influence your opponents. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16 says, Have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, underline when you are slandered, when you are spoken against, when they use contempt against you, those who revile your good behavior will be put to shame. And reward comes to the reviled. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my name. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. They persecuted the, the prophets before you. The first thing I want to say then is that godly leaders battle against discouragement. That we all need to know the tactics of the enemy. Secondly, godly leaders battle discouragement by bringing it to the Lord in prayer. The great temptation when we're being attacked, being made fun of, ridiculed, is to return fire, to retaliate, to go toe-to-toe. It may even feel weak if we don't try to get even. I shouldn't let them push me around. I'm going to show them who the boss is, right? I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. I'm going to give them what they deserve. We're always tempted to act in the flesh. And our first reaction is often the flesh. A secondary reaction is the spirit. If we are walking in the spirit, a great way to battle discouragement is to bring the whole matter to the Lord in prayer. Look with me now at verses 4 and 5. Then I prayed. I said, Hear us, O God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their heads. May they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in the front of these builders. Godly leaders battle discouragement by taking what is said before the Lord. Nehemiah is under attack. He does not retaliate, but he does surrender his feelings to God. Hear us, O God, for we are being mocked. He does not allow himself to get detoured from his work by taking time to reply to these words. The Lord heard the sneering taunts of Sanballat, Tobiah, and he would deal with them. And Nehemiah here prays a pretty strong, imprecatory prayer. He prays as a servant of God, concerned for the glory of God. He's not seeking after personal vengeance. He's saying, Lord, you deal with these guys. When you think about the cross, the Roman soldiers mocked Jesus, king of the Jews. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. And Pilate ordered them to flog Jesus with a whip. Flogging was often enough to kill a person. So they would bear his back and tie his hands to a pillar. And then they'd dispense punishment he didn't deserve. But the soldiers went beyond their orders to whip Jesus. What the soldiers did was they wove a crown of thorns and placed those thorns on Jesus' head. And then the soldiers put a purple robe on his back and said, Hail, King of the Jews. 
They mocked him as they slapped his face. They were crude, lewd men, making mockery of an innocent man. And then at the cross, the religious leaders scoffed. He saved others. Let him save himself if he really is the Messiah. The soldiers mocked him as well, offering him wine mixed with gall. And one of the criminals being crucified behind him scoffed so. You are the Messiah. Prove it by saving yourself and us too. What did Jesus do when he was under attack? He did not revile against those who reviled him. He did not try to get even. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Godly leaders, point three, battle discouragement by continuing to walk and to work with all of their heart. Criticism taken to heart can take the wind out of our sails. One of the people, you may be surprised to hear this, who was heavily criticized was the evangelist Billy Graham. He would live to be 99 years old. In the 50s, he was criticized for inviting blacks, African Americans, to come to his meetings in the South. In the 60s, he was criticized for inviting Catholic priests and bishops to sit on the platform, making it easier for Catholics to come to the meetings. He was criticized in the 70s for his close relationship with President Nixon, who would resign his presidency. He was criticized in the 80s for going to North Korea, building a bridge there. But the work he was called to was to preach the gospel. He didn't even answer his critics. He didn't allow them to get inside his head. He stayed his course. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And godly leaders battle discouragement by continuing the work God has called them to and not giving up. We come to verse 6. They've reached the halfway point. Look at verse 6 with me. At last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people worked with enthusiasm. They had come now halfway in the project. At last, half of the wall had been completed around the city. The wall was nine feet thick. The wall was 20 feet high. And they persevered in their work. They did not lose faith. They did not get derailed. They battled against discouragement. They persevered in their work. These moments need to be celebrated because we are now over halfway in our project. We are only three inspections away from finishing. The project has been going on for two years now. Clyde helped us with his drawings. Paul Wareham is our modern Nehemiah. Chris and John and Sharon have worked and been in the fight. And soon we will occupy that space. And then we will celebrate. But the truth is, yes, we will celebrate. But the truth is, the truth is, the truth is that Israel is always getting attacked from all sides. There's a story, there's a joke going on in Israel as I speak, that an Israeli soldier was in the United States visiting a zoo, and he was standing beside the lion cage, and a little five-year-old girl was standing close to the lion. The lion just pulled her into the cage, and she was in the grasp of the lion. And the Israeli soldier hopped the fence, he punched the lion in the face, he freed the girl from the lion, he returned her to her parents. 
and a reporter was standing there. An Al Jazeera reporter was standing nearby, and she said, this is the bravest thing I've ever seen happen. I'd like to write a story about this. So she asked him, who are you? And he said, I'm an Israeli. I fight for the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, and I vote Likud. And she wrote an article in the newspaper, and here's what the headline read. Right-wing extremists attacks African immigrant and who was ready to steal his lunch. What I'm trying to say is, just watch the social media shift as the battle goes on to become increasingly pro-Palestinian. You see, in verse 7, we're going to see an amazing thing happen. Look at verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard the work was going ahead and the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being prepared, repaired, they were furious. You see, a common enemy brought four groups together to stop the wall. Israel then, as well as now, is surrounded by enemies. To the north of Israel was Sanballat, the Samaritans. We would identify this area to be the West Bank. To the east of Israel was Tobiah and the Ammonites. Of course, the city of Ammon, where the Ammonites are, of Jordan to the east. So one of their enemies was to the east. To the south was Geshem and the Arabs. And to the west was the Ashdodites. Ashdod was the most important city of the Philistines in this time, the Gaza Strip. So let's look at our map just for a moment. What you have now is a picture of Israel and its situation in 445 B.C. That you have enemies to their east, the Ammonites, to the north, the Samaritans, to the west, the Ashdodites, and to the south, the Arabs. Now what you have in Israel is, in the Gaza is Hamas, with 40,000 troops. To the north is Hezbollah up in Lebanon with 150,000 troops. To the east is Jordan. And so back in 1973, five nations decided to attack Israel. Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq. During which time Israel would prevail against their enemies and take back the West Bank, take back the Gaza, take back the Golan Heights. What you have now is an attack against Israel. It seems that the people of Israel, the Jews, have always been under attack. Remember the time of Moses, Pharaoh king of, Ju of Egypt, was threatened by the increase of the Hebrews living in the land of Goshen. And even though they were slaves, they prospered because God's hand was upon them. And Pharaoh told the midwives that when they deliver a Hebrew child, if the child is a girl, let her live. But if the child is a boy, throw him in the river. Pharaoh wanted to annihilate the little Hebrew boys. It was an attack on the Jews. And the midwives feared God and let the little boys live. And the name Moses means one delivered from the river. God spared Moses and spared his people. And then there were three men, three young men living in Babylon. The king gave an order that everybody living in Babylon should bow down to his image. 
Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they would not bow down. He ordered them thrown into the fire. It was an attack on the Jews. The king was trying to wipe out God's people. And they survived the fire. The angel of the Lord protected them. And then there was Persia. There was a wicked man whose name was Haman. He came up with a plot to annihilate the Jews. He was, offend, he offended, he was offended by Mordecai who wouldn't bow down to him. So Mordecai spoke to Queen Esther and she asked for prayer. And she went before the king and the plot was uncovered and the Jews were spared. And she was raised up for such a time as this. You see, godly leaders battle discouragement by being on guard for an attack. It says in verse number 9, But we prayed to God and posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. So you see here at work the two aspects of the sovereignty of God, of praying to a God who has all power, and posting a guard to protect the people. He prays, but he does more than pray. He posts a guard. He combines the physical with the spiritual. And that is how Nehemiah was facing this moment. Jesus himself, in his lifetime, faced enormous opposition. We read in Luke chapter 6, that Jesus and his disciples were walking through this grain field. Now, they were told in Israel to not cut the grain to the corners of the field. And the disciples were quite hungry. It was a Sabbath. And so what the disciples did with Jesus was they began plucking these grain from the field and rubbing together and eating the grain. They were hungry. And the Pharisees saw this and began to judge them and said, what they're doing is wrong. And Jesus said, didn't you read, haven't you read, haven't you read where David went into the, um, to the priests and the priests gave him consecrated bread? You see, human beings matter more than rules. You see, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And then Jesus went into a place like this and he was preaching, he often was preaching. And there was a man there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees were just looking for an opportunity to accuse him. To oppose him. And he said to the man, I want you to stand up in the presence of everybody. The man had a withered hand. Most likely this man was a mason and he had crushed his hand working and he couldn't work with just one hand. And so Jesus says to him, I want you to stand up. And the man had the courage to stand. And then he said, stretch forth your hand. And he said, he stretched forth his hand. His hand was healed. Now, you would think the Pharisees would rejoice that a person with a crushed hand was healed. But they were jealous of Jesus, and they hated Jesus, and they began to plot against Jesus. You see, what Jesus came to do was he came to heal, he came to forgive, he came to set people free, for he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And, Jesus, and Paul writes this, for every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are announcing, remembering the Lord's death until he comes again. Israel lived under the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenants, but we live under the new covenant. The sign for Abraham was 
circumcision. The sign for Moses was the law. The sign for David was Messiah of his house. And now our Messiah has come. And we're told that we need to examine ourselves before we partake, but to remember the precious body of Jesus that was broken for you and the blood that was shed for the remission of your sins. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. And thank you, Lord, for his willingness to go to a cross for us, to face the ridicule, the jeers, the contempt of all those around him who said awful things to him. And yet, Lord, he was there making atonement for our sins. He was providing redemption for mankind, for all those who would believe, would enter into a relationship with him, and even at moments like this, to remember his death upon the cross. Would you sanctify these moments, Lord, as we come to receive these elements, as we remember what you have done for us. You paid this enormous price. You paid a debt you did not owe because we had a debt we could not pay. Lord, would you meet with us as we receive this bread and this cup? Would you quiet our hearts, Lord? Would you allow us to trust you in this very moment that you are at work in human history? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You just won't go away. There I am dealing with discouragement, dealing with a tough situation. It just won't go away. Maybe it's a health situation. Maybe you're just looking at the news and just feeling discouraged about what's happening in the world. Just to draw near to the Lord. He lifts our hearts and reframes, gives us perspective on all things. And another cure for discouragement is to witness someone being baptized, which will happen here in just a few moments seeing someone who now has put their faith in Jesus, is willing to go public with that and testify that I'm one of his. I belong to him. He's my savior. He saved me from my sins. He forgave me. That's going to transpire just after we dismiss you all. You want to stick around and encourage, be encouraged by baptism. Father, you are good. And your plans for us are good. You give us a future and a hope. And you lift our spirits by reminding us of who you are, God, that you're over all things, you're sovereign, you're on the throne, you're working out your purposes here upon this earth. Father, forgive us for, forgive us, Lord, for um, immersing ourselves only in the events of this world and forgetting that you are over all things that happen in this world and your plans are being worked out. We pray, your Lord, protection over troops in the Middle East, sailors aboard ships, soldiers being sent, those going in to clear out terrorism. We pray for those hostages to be returned safely to their families. We pray, Lord, that our trust in you would grow through this season. We see your hand upon this nation, Israel, for bringing them back into the land, sustaining them these 75 years. Pray, Lord, for, we pray for them. Lord, help that nation. They're in great crisis now. They've suffered their 9-11, their Pearl Harbor, and they're reeling from those losses. Lord, would you comfort them? Would you open their eyes to Messiah, that he truly is their hope 
but he's come, and he's coming back again. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.